This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Hey, look, it's the show about the most interesting people and stories in Mississippi. March is National Women's Month, and each week we are featuring an amazing woman of Mississippi. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with a phenomenal woman, Blunsey Brown-Wright. Uh, she was an amazing, she has an amazing story of triumph, strength, and is here to share it with us today. Also, Michelle and I will chat about the latest headlines and our water cooler conversations. Now, you could be part of the Today Show, so just give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or you can email me at marshall at mpbonline.org. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. We'll be right back after the news. You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. All right, welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. And uh, by the way, it's welcome back for me, too, because I'm back in the country. Yeah, look what I played for you. I know. There thank you, you. You should have done, like, Hail to the Queen I or something. I tried to find it. That's the name of it. <laughs> yeah. Hail to the Queen. I will play that little Which, you know, I would have probably taken insult to that somehow. I was like, what, what are you trying to say here now? Uh, well, you know what? We made a joke. Jeremy went to Rome for his one-year anniversary. Yes. You went to England for your spring break yeah. vacation. It's funny. It's like, where do you go from there? England, Rome. Well, What's I'll next probably year? be able to afford to maybe go to hot coffee or maybe <laughs> peel a hatchie. That's probably about it for a while. I tell you what, of course, this is now you're talking on MPP Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I tell you what, we have a great guest today too. Uh, but we'll talk about the England thing yes. in just a second, of course. In our water, well, she's like royal. She's royalty. Oh, she is royalty. Yeah, she's Mississippi royalty. We call it that. Well, I that's like the that. thing because you know like we that. have questions, but to be honest with you, I just want to get her wisdom across the air today. Exactly. She's, she's one of the wisest people I we know. We talked to our. Like, did she'll tell you the story? She came last week. Yeah. <laughs> she got the days oh, we did, Oh, no. She came. Oh, no, yeah. but you know what? It was meant. I told her everything happens for a reason. We sat in the front and we talked. Well, she talked and I listened for a whole hour. It was so pleasant. I had a great time. I sat on the couch. And like you said, I just soaked up a lot of knowledge. Oh, we've, been, we've been working on getting the world's problems solved in the last five <laughs> minutes. I don't know how successful we're going to be, but. Uh, yes, I am back uh, to go to England and Scotland. It was a England lot of fun. and Scotland. Hmm. Did you buy a kilt? Did you just tell me? Did you, you know, bring me it's one? It's so funny because, uh, of course, in Scotland, my family's the Ramsey family, obviously, mm-hmm. the Ramsey clan uh, with a C. And it, basically, we stayed in the castle, which is now a hotel, where the Ramsey family started. It's okay. called Dalhousie Castle, and it's near Edinburgh. Uh, Scotland, and it is a gorgeous castle. I've posted some pictures on my Facebook night, and yeah. so forth. And it was a four-story hotel without a lift, which is the British word for elevator. And so Mr. Ramsey here got to schlep his luggage up four flights of stairs. Wow. And it was like it was like a castle out of Scooby-Doo. So my kids were like, they were like, zoinks, you know, thinking. Yeah, that, you know, waiting they, for the ghost to come out. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did you see any, did we, you see, did anything move? Did anything fly across well, the there room? Was a, you know, Scottish weather is, um, at best, rotten. Uh, absolutely gorgeous country. Loved it. The people are great. A lot of people look like me. I was not very surprised by that. But I tell you what, it was raining hard. Wind was blowing probably, I don't know, 40 to 45 knots, which is about like a small, maybe tropical storm. And it was 33 degrees. So it was cold, rainy, and windy. And so that rot, you could hear it howling outside of the castle. So, I mean, the boys' eyes were about the size of, you know, (laughs) soccer balls. They were just huge. But it was so great. And we went to... um, so many different, you know, historical places. But my wife loves this show called Outlander. Okay. And it's on, I think, I can't remember which network it's on. But it's a story about a lady in Scotland, blah, blah, blah. It goes back in time. And we went to a couple of the castles where it was filmed. Well, one of them was closed, right, because they were about to do the filming. So, but did that stop my wife? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. We pull the pull the van down in there. And she gets out. And she marches up to the cap- castle. And I'm thinking, oh, here comes the security guard, right? So I'm thinking, great. You know, my wife's going to be thrown in Scottish prison. 
next thing you know, they're sitting there talking and talking and talking. So I'm like a coward, right? I'm hiding behind a bush because I don't want to get thrown in Scottish jail. I'll sacrifice my wife, no problem, you know, because I'm, I'm that kind of guy. And uh, I saw they were talking. I'm thinking, well, this, this is going to be kind of cool. So I walked up and see what's going on. Oh, she'd made best friends with him. Oh, he's coming to the States. Oh, if you want to come to Mississippi, that's great. <laughs> and so she's sitting there getting pictures and everything else. And it was just such a neat experience. But we were in London for uh, the majority of the time and loved London. I mean, and that's like I was telling uh, Flonzie just a minute ago. I said, you know, it kind of changes your worldview and perspective when you go see a wall that was built 2,000 years ago, mm-hmm. which is about a block from your hotel, which was built by the Romans right near the Tower of London, which was built in 1066. And then you go eat dinner in a pub, which is great because my kids got to see a pub, you know, because I'm, <laughs> I'm that kind of dad that bring your kid into a bar. And they get to eat in a pub that's older than our country. So it was for them, you know, they're studying, you know, they're right. studying European history, world history. It brought it right here. Oh, exactly. Like the book was, it was the exactly. book, but it was right there, tangible. They can touch it. They can right. see it. And that's amazing. And I'm not a man. I mean, I'm obviously not flush with cash all the time. I'm like most Mississippians. I'm working hard trying to make, you know, I've got teenagers. They're hungry, right? <laughs> well, my parents passed away. And part of their inheritance that we got, we did, we pretty much assigned it for two things. One, for the boys' education, mm-hmm. because my mom believed in education. She had a master's degree and, a, and a, a, a specialist degree, which is just short of a doctorate. And then we wanted for travel because they, in the last 20 years of their lives, they just traveled everywhere and they love travel. And we said, well, this would be a good thing to do. So we said, we're going to take the kids to England and to Scotland. And so took the uh, my middle son to a Chelsea football match, which is a soccer, soccer. game to mm-hmm. us. Uh, that was fun. An incredible experience. My other son and took his mom to go see Phantom of the Opera in, in West End, which was amazing. They had a great time. And on Twitter, I follow several other dogs that are the same kind of dog as my dog, mm-hmm. right? So Pip is my dog, and she has a Twitter account like most <laughs> weird dogs. I actually met some of the people I've been tweeting. And wow. we, we went and had tea in Hyde Park, which is the big, like, central park in New York mm-hmm. in the middle of London. And we sat and met them. And so, you know, here, thanks to the Internet, I was able to meet people that I just communicated with. And they were wonderful. And they were so kind and so so giving. But we rode the train up to Scotland, and that was nice because um, just you get to see the countryside. And it was a very nice experience there. And we went to several castles. We went to one called uh, Brambaugh Bar, mm-hmm. Bramber. Bramberg Castle. I'll get okay. out in a second. It's on the coast and is absolutely gorgeous. They were filming another show on net, nets on Netflix called Frontier, mm. and so they were filming that there. So we're sitting there walking up to the castle. And you can see the North Sea. It's it's just beautiful. And a van full of redcoats, British soldiers, wow. comes driving by, and because they, they're still in costume right. where they were filming that, and so that was a trip too. And uh, it it just really was fun and. I just was so, I mean, we got good at the tube, which is the underground, the subway. Mm-hmm. And so, and then we went, went to Parliament, Big Ben, for instance, the bell. Yeah, which, you know, a, people, let's talk people, about that. That's well, what I wanted to. Well, people think Big, Big Ben is the tower, mm-hmm. but that's the Elizabeth Tower. Right. Big Ben's the bell inside of it that you hear go dong, dong, dong. Mm-hmm. Well, right now it's in total scaffolding. And Big Ben's silent because they're having to spend, like I think, close to a billion dollars redoing Parliament because oh. the building, you know, is really old. Right. So it was completely in scaffolding. And in a way, it was kind of weird just seeing that. Uh, but and I told the boys, I said, just think, you're seeing Big Ben in scaffolding and nobody else will ever see it in scaffolding right. again. You know, I, in 1985, my family took me to New York. And I saw the Statue of Liberty in scaffolding. I couldn't oh. get to it because they were redoing it then. Mm-hmm. And so I got to go back. And I said, you'll get to see it. Well, you'll get to come back. Mm-hmm. But Parliament and Westminster Abbey. And Westminster Abbey, I mean, you're walking along and suddenly there's Charles Darwin's grave. <laughs> and there's Laurence Olivier's grave. And there's, I mean, all these poets. And, and you know, just, just one after another. And you're like, this is incredible. Then we went to the Churchill War Rooms. Oh. Okay. Now, if you've seen the movie The Darkest Hour, which, of course, um, Gary Oldman won the, the Academy Award for mm-hmm. for his portrayal of Winston Churchill. The the Churchill War Rooms are, were his headquarters during the bombing of the, you know, during World War II when the Germans were during the Blitz, when they were bombing London. It's 10 feet underground, so one well-placed bomb could have taken them out. But it's their bomb shelter, and everything was left the way of the last day of the war when they, they just abandoned it after the war. So now they've turned it into a museum. So as we're watching Darkest Hour, you could, it's set up exactly like what the war rooms were. Wow. It was such a great history lesson. And, of course, you know, my kids, you know, they, they would look forward to every – in fact, I think we spent more time in the gift shops <laughs> – 
than we did, you know, a lot of things. And so we came back with like two suitcases full of souvenirs. Did you bring me a Big Ben t-shirt? Now, not the Big well, Ben t-shirt that has a guy have... of a guy named Ben on the back. Right, a giant Ben. Why didn't you tell me that? Because I was right there. I could have gotten you one. So I, I, I'll draw you a Big Ben or something. Okay. I feel like I'm killed now. That I didn't now, I know one. a guy named Ben. You can draw him. And he's, he's big. Is he, is he big? He yeah. Is, yeah. I knew a couple guys named Ben, too. They were big also. But they didn't. Um, we took a... a River Thames tour, and I went for a run one day, mm. and I went by the Tower of London across Tower Bridge, which is one of the more famous sites. Ran down the Thames, ran across the Millennium Millennial Bridge, Millennium Bridge to St. Paul's Cathedral, which is the one you see a lot of the pictures of World War II. Of all, there's this dome that looks just like the U.S. Capitol dome. Okay. That's St. Paul's. It's okay. a huge cathedral there. Um, an architect last name Wren designed it 300 years ago. Of all the places I went in, that place was just amazing. That's where Charles and Diana got married. Oh. And so it's really big inside. So you're walking around going, wow, I could probably bump into God. Did you place. sing London Bridges you know, at uh, any no, time? I did, you know, <laughs> I decided that if me singing would cause an international incident. <laughs> we did go to Evensong service, though, which is a, a singing service at the end of the day okay. on Sunday at the chapel, St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle, mm. which is, of course, the Queen's kind of weekend residence. It's a little bit out of town gorgeous absolutely it was built in 1300s and of course it was restored and added on to by uh when queen victoria if you watch the show of course here on mpb uh she and her husband they kind of added to it so it was absolutely just a beautiful ornate chapel so we went that and did the service there and we're sitting up in the choir area which is separate from the rest of the church and you can't really see the rest of the church and it was literally like we were in heaven. I've wow. never been to anything more beautiful in my life, that service. And i got to figure they probably stuck us up there because probably the queen was just sitting out in the, <laughs> out in the middle part. You know, going, Did the sun hey. come out at any point? We had every kind of weather possible. I know, right? I know. <laughs> if Lance is doing the queen, queen wave. Queen wave. Hello, hello. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, one day it rained, and the next day it was kind of sunny, the next day it was warm, the next day it was cold. We got Scotland. Scotland was cold. But really? It was, it was amazing. It was gorgeous. You, did you and get they, a picture of the North Sea? I keep hearing you say that. I yes. want to see that. Yeah, and I put, a, I put a video up of the beach, okay, I need to see that. which is a dark sand, but there's light sand from the dunes blowing across it. It was really amazing. Oh. So you can go on my Instagram or Facebook and find that video. Okay. Marshall Ramsey. I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> but... Um, we got back to London, and it was, it was 23 degrees C, Celsius. Ooh. Okay, so that's about almost 70 degrees, right? The next day, when we were flying out, it was snowing. Jeez. It was snowing. So they had to de-ice our plane and everything, and we got out and flew back home. Did you get to do Stonehenge like we talked we about before? We did. We went to Stonehenge. Oh, you did. And we went to Woodhenge, which is right outside of Stonehenge, which was kind of neat because it's a bunch of sticks in the ground, a bunch of poles that are arranged in the same circular pattern that Stonehenge is. And what they figure is that was where the village was of the people that constructed Stonehenge. Now, oh. a lot of the stones, there's called blue, blue stones that are in Stonehenge were from Wales, which is a long way away. And they figured part of it had to come by boat. Mm. And part of it, how do you, I mean, this right. is, is 10,000 years right. ago. They didn't have so they con- didn't, trucks they and they things. They didn't have cargo planes <laughs> yeah, or trains. Yeah, how did they or, bring them in there? Right. Well, wow. one of the things they had was they had a stone that was a little smaller than one of the Stonehenges outside the visitor center. And they had handmade ropes like they would have used back then. Mm-hmm. And there were about 80 of us pulling on that stone. And we got to actually lift up a stone like how they would have raised yeah. up one of the stones in Stonehenge. So my 10-year-old got to help me lift up a stone for Stonehenge. Wow. And then we brought it back down and we, we had to move it. And what they would do is they would cut logs and they would wet the logs and roll it over those logs over distance and then re, you know, move. keep yeah. moving mm-hmm. it. So that's how they did it. So we moved that they also. They were very smart, very innovative back then, you know. But I couldn't help <laughs> think of Spinal Tap, the movie Spinal <laughs> Tap, because there's this great scene where the Spinal Tap, the band, and if you've ever seen, they're singing about Stonehenge and they wanted a fake Stonehenge to come down, but instead it was a little tiny Stonehenge, and it was really funny. So, uh, my boys, of course, um, having you know watched Monty Python and Stonehenge, mm-hmm. we went to the castle where they filmed Monty Python and the Holy Grail. They, it was it's called Dune Castle, and they also filmed film Outlander there. So we're going there. That one was open, so we didn't have to break into that one. <laughs> But we walked up, and it's like there's a scene in, in Monty Python where they shoot. The, there's very rude Frenchmen, and they are shooting cows over the wall. 
that's the castle. Wow. And so my boys are sitting there reciting the line, you know, uh, from having a movie. great time. Oh, just having a ball. <laughs> so it was just one of those things that I don't even want to tally up how much this thing costs. Right. But it, it, it was, was worth it. Was it. Priceless. Mm-hmm. it was priceless. And, you know, if you ever watch a movie where people are driving through London quickly, <laughs> it's a lie. Okay. It, that town is the most congested town because there are interstates quote-unquote interstates in england Mm -hmm. there aren't any in london and so everything and there was one cab ride that we took to go to stamford bridge is where chelsea plays football Mm -hmm. and so it was like 60 bucks one way for that so we spent a lot of time on the tube itself Mm. which was a great way to get around Mm -hmm. and we had a good time but i walked one day i walked thirty thousand steps that's what you know jeremy said that he talked about how many steps he walked in London, mm-hmm. I mean in um, Rome, and you do a lot of walking when you go somewhere else. <laughs> so oh, he oh, you said do. he walked so many steps. I mean, he was amazed. Well, and people were like, walking did, did. You, "Did you feel safe?" <laughs> yeah, I felt safe, and it was weird. I went down at at ten o'clock. Well, there's one guy that just thought I was going to get attacked by terrorists or something. Oh, and no. you know, we did walk across the bridge where that happened right there by Parliament, and they put up. And it's sad. They had to mm. put up guardrails, you know, mm. to protect. And you just think every time something like that happens, it's such a heartbreak. But um, we just sat and, and looked at all the different things that we did. And, and it's like, it's amazing. I never felt uncomfortable once mm. the whole time. And the alienist, I watched that. So, you know, somebody would, you know, they, they depict over there to be dark and gloomy. And, oh, it you was know. dark and gloomy because it was, I mean, Scotland was dark and gloomy. Mm. Cause it was, but I got some really incredible pictures because it was so, the lights they're reflecting off the the wet streets mm-hmm. and everything like that. But, yeah, we did um, – London Eye was good. I'm trying to just throw – not to tell you about my home. We went to 221B Baker Street. Okay. You recognize that address? I, I don't. Sherlock Holmes. Oh, Lord. Yeah, okay. We went, went to Sherlock Holmes, uh, which is a museum. I mean, right. he never lived there because he's a fictional character. But uh, it, <laughs> No, he's real in some – Well, in somebody's <laughs> minds, he was very definitely real. Um, that was great. Uh, bu- 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 you know, the, the breakfast, the food. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Good? Um, you know, people give the English a hard time about yeah. food. There's some things that they do really well. And there was just, you know, blood sausage, no thanks. I'm just, there's some stuff I was, yeah. but it was, I mean. I'm I a get, fish and chips type person. I like that. They were good. And I, I tell you. I love that. But we made sure we were in the pub to get them. Yeah. We didn't, didn't get Ooh. one out of the hotel. Sauerkraut and Brockwurst and things. I like stuff like they that. They do sausage really well, although mm-hmm. it's a different consistency. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, it was there was some good food, and we we were surprised. We actually ate at a very good Italian restaurant of mm. all things too. That was quite tasty. Uh, my wife did high tea at Harrods, which right. is the big big store there, and she's quite fond of high tea now. So she <laughs> bought her a little kettle. So and I and I'm really trying not to use words like you know, bugger and lift and you know stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it's hard not to. You know, but what was so cool is like we're sitting in the soccer match. And every, we're hearing everybody talking with a British accent. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit jarring when we got back, but um, we're back, and my brain is still about five hours ahead. So <laughs> uh, we'll get it all back. But I yeah. tell you what, we have somebody up next. You're going to love one of my favorite guests that I've had on before, and I'm glad she's back, Flonzie Brown Wright. Uh, incredible story from the past, incredible story from the future. You're going to love her. Just stay tuned. It's fantastic. And, of course, you if you want to be part of the show, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or you can email, email me at marshall at mpbonline.org. This is now you're talking on MPB Think Radio. As donors, we know that MPB makes a difference. Felder on MPB Radio was the catalyst that inspired us to include tea production on our blueberry farm. Our business continues to grow. That's That's our our MPB MPB story. That might sound like loose change to you, but to us here at Mississippi Public Broadcasting, it sounds like support. Now with the program Change by Soft Giving, you can round up your change from everyday purchases and support MPB and the programs you love. With every purchase, you show your support for smart, entertaining, and engaging programs that benefit all Mississippians. Sign up today by visiting mpbonline.org support and click Donate Your Change. 
You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. All right, welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. And I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, straight back from London to you today. I tell you what, it's good to be back. I tell you what, Michelle, I woke up this morning thinking I can't wait to get back to work. And there's something wrong with me, seriously. I love yeah. what I do. It's just fun. I missed you. I and missed it, you. It was different. And well, and I got to tell you this. I tried to unplug from social media. You did know. you unplug? I did. About 99% of the time, I would pick up the phone occasionally, and we did get cell service mm-hmm. over there just so that we could, you know, be in contact with each other more than anything. Mm-hmm. And I did keep up with and There were some news stories that happened. I was like, oh, I wish yeah. I was there to draw cartoons. But you know what? You have to focus on your family. Focus. Speaking of family, oh, my God. A woman oh. that oh, loved, she Oh, she is family. She's family to us. And she's show. family, but she embodies family. When oh, we she, talked for that hour, she talked about how important her family is to her, and she wouldn't be who she was is today without her family. And I oh. want her to talk about that today oh, we're, we're and a whole about lot more. I'm about to say, she, she's incredible. Of course, that incredible person we were talking about is Flunzy Brown, right? Um, I, I love this. I was reading an article about her, and it's on the front of Mississippi Christian Living, which she says if you want to find out who the true her is, other than listening to this interview, of course, uh, you need to read that article. But on the front cover, they describe her this way. Pioneer, visionary, and steel magnolia. I think that's a pretty good description. Yeah. I think it is, too. She's always reminded me of someone that's... In a ninja, too. Yeah. She's a ninja. She's a ninja. She really is. <laughs> well, let's let her tell yeah. us up. <laughs> and she did not get up and walk out. And, Fonzie, you have managed to get headphones from, like, six feet away. So if you get uncomfortable, you can change headphones, I swear. She's got a real tight cord, so I don't want to lose her on this. Or There we go. We're good. Fonzie, welcome back to the show. Well, good morning. Thanks for inviting me. And I feel a little bit, I feel like I should, Fonzie, I'm kind of maybe overstepping my bounds. I can't call you Fonzie. Can you I? can. Okay, good deal. Absolutely. Just out of respect. We're you know. friends. Okay, that's good. We're friends. That's cool. I mean, yeah, first name basis. That's good. Oh, sure. Uh, welcome back, by the way. And, and um, sorry you had to hear me talk about my trip so much. Oh, I enjoyed it. As I mentioned to you uh, during the break, that I could just listen to you for the rest of the showtime, and then we could just say goodbye and go home. It was so interesting. Well, I can tell you this. Um, <laughs> I dare say you are way more interesting than I am. You've had <laughs> oh, a great life. Uh, incredible life, too. And I... I I think about what happened to you early in, in your age growing up, and, and you're growing up. You grew up in, in Canton, right? Yes. Yeah, that's why I, I thought so. I knew you were very, you've been very involved in Canton. I wasn't quite sure if that's where you grew up. And you saw your cousins, um, you, basically, they got murdered. Right. And that was pretty, that was, that really left a mark, didn't it? It, it really did. I was born in Farm Haven, however, which is about 16 miles east of Canton, but we moved to Canton. When I was five, yeah. five or six, um, and of course, this was the same year that Emmett Till was killed. Right, and so that's how um, that is just etched in my memory. And um, two uh, boys walking down the road in Thomastown, one fifteen, one seventeen, on their way down the road to the store from Chicago, visiting a grandmother. Yeah, and um, on their way to the store, this this truckload of white guys passed by and stopped and said, "Hey, where are you boys going?" And they said, oh, we're just walking down the road to the store. They said, well, hop on the truck. We'll take you. And, of course, being innocent, 15- and 17-year-old boys, they jumped on the back of the truck, and the guys took them down. But um, ultimately, they took them off in the woods um, and beat them um, and then chained them to the truck and drugged them. Um, uh, the first one, one of the boys was was dead pretty much immediately, but an old lady heard one of the other boys moaning and crying out. And so she just happened to got her husband and they just went searching for the voice. And so they found the younger boy, Eugene, almost dead, but uh, incoherent. Um, And so they brought them to the hospital there in in Canton, then ultimately to the funeral home in Canton. And what I remember about that so much was that someone uh, identified these boys as being Browns. Uh, which was my my dad's um, my dad's brother's son and nephew, so they came to get my dad at home, and uh, at that time parents didn't leave their children at home because this was at night. Right. And so they wanted to my, my they wanted my parents to come in and identify to see whether or not these were our relatives. And and my brothers and I were sitting in the front parlor of the funeral home, and mother and daddy went back to the uh, I guess to the to the room. And I just remember hearing my mother scream. I just, right. I, it's a scream that I have never heard. 
before nor since. She just screamed because she knew uh, that these were our relatives. And so uh, that memory has stuck in my mind so much during my years of advocacy, if you will. So, yes. And then, of course, I had a grandson. Uh, my oldest son's son, who my oldest son passed away four years ago. Four and, years ago, and that was very tough on you too. Oh, that was yeah. very tough because my oldest son and I flew to California once we got the news, and it, I had to take my oldest son into the mortuary oh. to identify this kid, yeah. eighteen years old, laying on a slab, shot fifteen times by the police, um, shot so badly until, as I say, his body looked like a checkerboard. They even shot his little finger off. Because he and his brother and some boys in the neighborhood had been accused of, of stealing something out of a store. Well, my grandson was in a wheelchair, could not walk, um, because he had broken his leg playing basketball, and there was a pin in his leg. So he was sitting in a wheelchair, and so they came to the house and accused him of stealing something out of a merchant store in the little corner store. And he was sitting on his hands, had his hands on his bottom, and the fire policemen came with that with their shotguns drawn and, and said, give us the gun, give us the gun. We know you robbed the store and used a lot of you know, a vulgar language. And my grandson Dion said, I didn't steal anything. I hadn't been anywhere. I've been in the yard. Well, ultimately, there was rancor back and forth. And so when my grandson put his hands up to show them that he did not have a gun, they put, put, pumped 15 bullets in his They body. thought he was making a move. They thought he, had, yeah, thought he was bringing out a gun to shoot them. So been through a lot of tragedy, a lot of adversity, but a lot of um, positive things as well. A lot of positive things. And I think a, a good place to start <laughs> on the positive side would be your parents. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Your dad, and I remember you telling me this the last time, your dad's work ethic was not, I mean, just, I mean, it inspired me hearing about it. Um he, I guess he was a plumber's assistant, but he also dug graves too, if I remember correctly. That was my grandfather. That was your grandfather. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yes. so it's this yes. is your the work ethic. Of course, yours is out of this world. So this is <laughs> this is a genetic thing. It obviously. is. It yeah. is. It is. Because mom and dad taught us um, to work for a living. Um, they 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 taught us the um, the advantages of a good day's work for a good day's pay. So right. I grew up working. As a matter of fact, when I was 12 years old, um, I I had a home-based business. Uh, no I way. Was, when I was 12, it's so funny now. Um, I, I did hair uh, on Friday and Saturdays. The, my classmates would come, and I would, this was before the perms and the weaves and the Wigs even were popular. And so on Saturdays, I would straighten hair and curl hair, and, and I'd charge 75 cents to straighten and $1.25 to straighten and curl. And my dad put me a little jet in my room. I, we couldn't wash the hair at home. They would have to come with the hair already washed. But on Saturdays, Fridays and Saturdays, I, I fixed hair, as we said back in the day. And so at 12 years old, I had a business in my home because I had watched my dad and my even my grandfather, the gentleman <clears throat> who uh, dug the graves, was my dad's dad. And he worked on a plantation with with uh, his his sons. And even though, even though my grandfather couldn't read, write, nor hear, he could count money quicker than the banker. And what he could not understand was after the season was over, when the cotton had been picked, the sugar cane had been harvested, the soybeans and corn and all of that had been harvested, how was that he still owed the landowner money? He just couldn't figure that out. Right. And so one day he snatched his boys off the plantation and walked and left and left. I mean, without no visible means of support to take care of 13 children. Wow. And of course... um, because his mom, who was a slave, yeah. um, had placed so much um, uh, encouragement and self-confident uh, com- confidence in him. Uh, and so what he did, he, he made molasses from sugar cane, 35 cents a can. He dug graves, $7 a grave. Which was a lot of money. Which then. was a lot of money. Right. And then he dressed hogs for $3 a head. And so when it was hog killing time, people know to come get Rob Brown. So here's a man born the son of a slave and died a businessman. And all of his children became business people, including my father, because they watched their dad come from from nothing, really, post-slavery, and and to become a successful businessman. People knew when it was molasses making time, tell Rob Brown and save me seven cans. Tell Rob Brown and save me five cans. And so this is how my grandpa, and I watched him as a child grow up. Um, 
Didn't know either one of my grandmothers because my mom's dad, my mom's mom died before she married. My dad's mom died when I was three months old. So I never had that grandmother connection, but my grandfathers, both of them, played uh, a very important role in my life. We're talking with the phenomenal Flonzie Brown Wright today. And, and I tell you, um, education was a big part, obviously, of your household as well. And you ended up going to Tougaloo College. Talk about that experience because you went during a really charged, supercharged time to be at Tougaloo. Well, exactly. And I was a non-traditional student because at the time when I returned from California in 1962 with the mother, a mother of three children and back home with mom and the divorce and all of that that we go through, and I got a little job. Well, I got a job with the NACP with Mr. Evers uh, making $25 a week. <laughs> and um, then uh, later on, an, a, a federal-funded program came into Canton called STAR, Systematic Training and Redevelopment, which was a program to assist um, adults to get their GED certificate. So I worked in that program, and I was a recruiter. And, of course, um, I was doing some work at Tougaloo, uh, learning how to write grants. As a matter of fact, that's when I met Marion Wright before she became Edelman. Oh, yeah. And and Alice Walker, uh, when she was Alice Walker. Mm -hmm. And so because they came in and taught us how to write proposals and and how to to do self-help things within our community. And so um, Dr. Uh, Owens... um, was very, very kind to me because he knew how involved I and a lot of other folk in Canton, not just me, there were a lot of other folk in Canton involved, but he he felt that uh, he saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself. And he offered me a feigned fellowship. So being a non-traditional student, I would get up, get my children off to school, go to work, work a while, drive from Canton down to Tougaloo to go to school, come back, go back to work, pick up the kids, go home, uh, get prepare supper, get them ready for school the next day, back over and over again. And I attended Tougaloo for two years. So as a non-traditional student. You know, I think a lot of people listening right now, they heard you just say, well, I got married, moved to California, got divorced, came back, I had kids. And of course now everybody's thinking, yeah, well, that happens a lot. That was a pretty big deal back then, too, to, to have the courage to do that. Well, well, it was. And again, it was because of the, the encouragement of my yeah. I just wish you could have known my mom and dad. They loved us children so much until they wanted the best for us. And that's why my mom was able to take my dad's paycheck of $15 a week and send my brothers and me to the Catholic school yeah. back in the early 50s. Tuition was put maybe $8 a month. Right. But yet they paid rent and groceries and utilities and uniforms. And then mother saved money from that amount of money and bought a home. My dad was the only child, which was he was the, the youngest child of my grandfather's children, um, he was the only child to actually build a home from the ground because mom didn't want us living in in, in an apartment. And there's nothing wrong with that. I right. lived in an apartment. Sure. She didn't want us living in public housing. I haven't done that, but I could have. But mother wanted us to have a home, our own room, a yard, because she loved flowers. And so she planted all kinds of flowers around the yard. And, and so... Um, she want, they wanted to bring us up in a home atmosphere, and my dad was a hard worker. Mom worked some, but mostly was a stay-at-home mom. But, um, you know, in all of that, the values that they instilled within us, I have tried to instill those same values within, uh, in, in, within my own children. And so um, God has been good to me. That's all that I can say. It's been a journey, and it still is a journey. Just last night, I lectured a group of students from Hiram, Ohio who were in Mississippi for the first time touring the South. And so I'm still on on the beating path, if you will, uh, because of a promise I made in 1966 to Dr. King. We'll continue. I'll tell you, let's talk about that, too, because, okay. I mean, you've got a great experience with him, too, and I can't wait to, to hear it again. Of course, we're talking with the very incredible Flonzy Brown-Wright. And, of course, if you want to be part of the show, you can give us a call at 877-672-7464, or you can email me at marshall at mpbonline.org. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Digital media workshop for high school students was amazing. I learned new skills and now I'm pursuing a career in film production. That's my MPB story. 
You're listening to Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey on MPB Think Radio. Well, you know it's Monday if you hear Marshall, because it's Monday. And this is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I tell you what, um, I hope you've been tuned in. we got incredible guests, somebody I love having on the show, Flonzie Brown-Wright. Uh, and, Flonzie, it's always good to talk to you. It's always good to see you. And I was, I sometimes wish that we could take our conversations during that one-minute break and, and also broadcast them, because they're always some of the best little nuggets that come out. You said something a little bit earlier. You were talking about your parents and how, uh, what your family life was like. And, 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 I, and I said to you, I said, if I were to write a self-help book on how to be successful, I would basically just rip off everything you've told me about your parents. <laughs> because your parents, not only did they, were they driven, which a lot of people are driven, but they were focused on something bigger than themselves. Absolutely. They were, figured, they were focused on y'all. They were, and they always taught us that if anybody else can do it, so can you. Yeah. And when we would come to our parents with ideas of things that we wanted to do, my older brother in his pursuit of education and me and just trying to rear my children and my younger brother, um, and we would tell them what we wanted to do and what we would like to do, uh, they said, well, go for it. We're behind you. Right. And they always taught us that as long as you are trying, you can count on us. Right. As long as you believe in what you're doing, you can count on us. No matter what we have to do to make this happen for you, we will. Because after all, remember, my dad was making $18 a week, and we went to a private school. Right. And this was in the early 50s because mother knew that the education in the public school system at that time was so inferior until she wanted to at least give her children a good foundation of education. Right. And she knew that the Catholic school would be one of those entities that would uh, achieve that objective. So it was difficult for them to you know, for mother to take that fifteen, eighteen dollars a week and 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 go to the grocery and pay the utility bill, pay the rent, uh, put a little gas in the truck, and give us a little spending change for our chores, and then put money in a, in a cookie jar. Yeah, but and we live we live in such a selfish time now. Where you know there would be parents that would think, well, I can't go to Starbucks or I can't. No offense to Starbucks, I like Starbucks, but I mean I can't do stuff for me. But they were focused. They they had a vision. Because they knew that the world was tough, and they knew yes. that they, and and I was thinking about how that would affect you, because here when when Medgar Evers calls you or Dr. King calls you and and wants you to participate, in something that honestly was very scary at the time, right. you had you had that base, yes. you had that love of your parents, and you yes. knew everything was going to be okay. I did, and even though there were fearful times, now I didn't know Medgar Evers, but of course I worked with Dr. King. Yeah, but I I, I knew that the civil rights movement that I was in. Uh, I knew at any point in time my life could have been taken. Yeah. I knew that. Uh, my life was threatened all the time. Uh, even the lives of my children was threatened, that they were going to kill my children because I was involved in the wow. movement. And what I would do, um, and my children did not know this until 10 years ago, that uh, what I would do when they would get out of school in the afternoon, I would let them get a little head start walking with their friends. Yeah. And then I would drive on another street to follow them home to be sure that they got home safely. Because, see, they didn't ask for what I was doing. Exactly. I was involved in the movement because I thought it was the right thing to do. They didn't ask for that, but I had to protect their safety. So it's it's all about family for me. Right. And that's what it has always been. And even sometimes uh, Cynthia Goodlow Palmer, which is my daughter, everybody knows that, <laughs> and then my youngest son, Lord, sometimes we have these uh, very spirited discussions. <laughs> And and some maybe one of them would say, well, well, Ma, you know, we're okay. You don't have to do that. I said, listen, that's the mama in me. I said, that's just, and then we'd have, right. have a big laugh about it. maybe I may chide them or maybe correct them on something from my perspective, but they are adult and they remind me when I'm mom, you know, we're grown. Yes, you are. And I do respect that. But I'll always be your mama. I will always be your mama. So right. anyway, we have a big laugh about that. But family was very, very important to me growing up. It still is today. And sometimes I get weary and I get worried and I, I worry about uh, where we are now in, in, in a lot of instances. Right. We, still have a, we still have a lot of good parents. I know a lot of good parents today, but I get worried sometimes when I see things going on that are outside of the norm for me. They may be normal, but they are outside, outside of the norm right. from, what I, from where I was raised. But... Um, we just have to keep going on every day. You get up every day, you put one foot in front of the other foot, and you keep walking what, in spite of all that. Exactly. And I, and, and that's, I think that just sums you up about as well as I could have done it because 
you know, I love Facebook. Okay. I love social media. And a lot of people spend a lot of time complaining on these certain things, writing long posts. And you've always kind of struck me as the kind of person when you see something that needs to be done or changed, you just get them, go do it. That's well, kind of the way we all need to be, right? Yeah, uh, yes, I, I I do, and 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 I, I want to just thank the thank the yeah. world in a way for giving me the opportunity to to help tell these stories and and help uh, share this history with our people. Last it, year, well, it, I just say that's how you end up being the first female <laughs> African American elected official in Mississippi since Reconstruction. I can't. I can't state that enough. I mean, you were election commissioner in Madison County and Canton in the exactly. County area. That is an incredible achievement. That exactly and right. Because you saw something needed to be done. I saw something that needed to be done. Now I, I have to pay homage to Mount Bayou because we all know that Mount, Mount Bayou is a black city, and anybody who was elected in Mount Bayou. 500 years ago was going to be black because it's a black city. But I'm the first to be elected in a biracial town in the state of Mississippi. And when I ran, um, I I had, I didn't even offer myself to run Mrs. Annie Devine, who was one, who was a colleague of Mrs. Hamer and Mrs. Gray came to me one day. She said, you're going to run for office. I said, Mr. Vine, what? I said, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. I said, can't do that. She said, no, we need someone on the inside of that, on the inside of that courthouse, to see what's going on because we can't get petitions certified. None of our candidates ever win, and we know there's something going on with, within the election commission, within the circuit clerk's office, that's preventing our people from from even having that petition certified. I said, Miss Devine, I don't know anything about the law. She's what well, she said. Well, the man who's in there now doesn't know anything about the law. He's there because he's got power. And so I, I said, well, let me think about it. So ultimately, when I had my own experience of registering and being cussed out and thrown out of the courthouse just for trying to register and vote, I, I resolved the day that, that the registrar uh, called me, called me out of my name, and I won't say this on public radio. Y'all call it the N word, but if you know, if I were to say it, I would say it differently, and you know what I'm talking about. And I decided that day that I was going to run for public office, and I was going to get his job. And so, when election time came, I didn't run for his position. I ran for the position that supervised his office. And so, th- that the significance of that. Now, that did not come without a struggle either, because heretofore. Um, the position that I was running for was, was within the metropolis of Canton, beat one. But then when they, when it was announced that a black female had qualified to run for the, the position of election commission, they required that I run countywide instead of beat yeah. wide. I had to run countywide in all 13 precincts instead of the five within the city of Canton. That was a way to try and get me defeated. And I still won. And you still won. I still beat the man who was the incumbent because they tried they put the stomach block in my way. Yeah. And this was the same year that Hubert Humphrey ran. And, of course, the big headlines the next day, um, um, good low defeats. Uh, Humphrey Canton. Yep, see. right here. Here it is. Um, Ten qualify and race for election commissioners. Yep. Hang on. We're Next flipping. Page. Okay, Next. here we go. Here we go. Humphrey Carris County, good low defeats Riddell. And that was the big news of the day. Yeah. Even though they put those summoning blocks in my way to try and defeat me, I still won. And so 1968, 50 years this year, um, I was elected to the position of election commissioner. Because believe it or not, as quiet as it's kept, and not because I was successful, but the election commission's position is the most powerful position mm-hmm. in government from my perspective. These are the people who decide how many polling places, how many poll workers, where they're going to be, right. training, certifying the votes, uh, counting the votes. The election commission is the most powerful position from my perspective in government mm-hmm. because without an election commission commissioner to represent your particular area, then who's going to count the votes? Right. Who's going to have the ballots printed? Who's going to going to decide how many ballots the particular precinct needs? Who's going to, who's going to do the training? And as a matter of fact, in my book... Well, the book is, by the way, Looking Back to Looking Move Back Ahead. to Move Ahead. Fantastic book. Well, it, 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 the title is, is, again, revelatory. but mm-hmm. um, And also in the book is a picture of me doing a training uh, after I was elected... Um, after I was elected, and this this picture is hung in the Civil Rights Museum um, as I was teaching a workshop, and the New York Times 
did this story back in 1971. So this is a picture of me training people on the election. And this picture is actually hung in the museum. Oh, wow. And I'm grateful that they uh, contacted me and wanted to, to, to do that because I didn't even know who was um, actually gathering data and documents. So it's been an interesting life. Um, I, I feel good. Um, I haven't done any of this for popularity, um, the accolades. I'm being honored tomorrow at the Mississippi State Senate. Um, haven't done any of this. They contact me. My phone rings or I'll get a text. Can you do this? Can you come here? Just like you invited me to come to your show. Of course. And, and I do appreciate that. And it's not about being popular in any of that. It's about I don't want to die with this history that I have. Right. I want to share as much of this history as a way of educating. Well, that's inspiring. like you said. You're and talking. It, you're talking to, to to college groups like you did last night. Right. I mean, and, and this is an international group that yeah. came in from the Netherlands. And if people uh, people come from all over the world. Last year, I did five mm-hmm. international documentaries: Switzerland, Ger- Germany, uh, the Netherlands. People came in from all over the world to talk to me. They get my name from somebody, right. and I get a telephone call. I'm doing a radio show for a German radio program this coming Thursday. And I don't even know who these people are, but, you know, we've been communicating. And so if I can just um, help somebody, right? as Dr. King says, if I can just help somebody as we pass along, because, you know, life is a journey. You know, one day I won't be here, just like we've lost a lot of veterans. A lot right. of people died with this history and their passion and their dreams within them. That's why the new museum is so important. Oh, it's so important. Absolutely. Because it captures so many of our stories, but yet a lot of stories are still untold. Because if we were to tell all of our stories, we would probably need five city blocks to talk about. But certainly the museum, both museums, tell the stories of our of our Mississippi history and then our civil rights history, because that era was a defining moment in America's history. And we need to be telling our own story. We got to tell yeah. our own stories because right. again, you know, I've, uh, I've, I tell people when they call me, I said, okay, I'll give you this information. If you're not going to say it the way I'm telling you, then I'm not the one you go find somebody else. Uh, Cause I know you're writing from a certain perspective. You want to fill in. I'm not a filler in her. Right. You know, if you don't want, if you don't want my information, it's fine. Cause you called me, I didn't call you, but if you're not going to tell it the way I'm saying it to you, then I'm not the one because it's important that we tell our own stories. Right. Cause we know it, we lived it and we lived through it. And that's the most important thing for me. One story I want you to get you to tell, and we got to take a break somewhere along this way. We're not going to take a break today. Great. Good. We got more time for the story. When Dr. King called you, I mean, it was a loaves and fishes thing. Okay. Yeah. We're bringing 3000 people in. I, I mean, I get a little bit nervous when family drops in, you know, and that's only two or three people. You had to literally do a loaves and fishes to not only get that, but tell us about that experience and also, too, what it was like to get to know Dr. King. Well, thank you so much. Yes, as you know, during the Meredith March, the Meredith Walk, yes, uh, that began as a walk in 1966, and then, of course, when Mr. Meredith was shot, all of the civil rights organizations and their directors, um, leaders, I thought it was uh, no more than right that everybody come together as one and carry on what he was trying to do. His walk had two purposes. Number one, to show that a black man could, in fact, walk down a Mississippi highway without any harm befalling him. That was number one. They didn't work then out number so well. two, yeah. not so well. Sure. Then number two, as he walked down through uh, the Delta areas in particular, um, he wanted to do voter registration in Indianola, in Shaw, in Drew, Sunflower County, Greenwood, Greenville. So he wanted to do voter registration as he walked along those towns. So that was his really his two main goals. And so as the marchers uh, were reorganized and they began uh, to they, they began to continue the march that Mr. Meredith had begun. Three days before the marches reached Canton, uh, my telephone rang. Of course, there was no caller ID, and I didn't know who was on the line, but I tried to answer the phone in a jovial voice, and I said, good morning. And the voice on the other end said, "Uh, good morning. Is this Flonzie Goodlow? I said, yes, it is. And I knew the voice right away, but I I said, this can't be. He said, "Uh, this is Martin King. I said, well, good morning, Dr. King. How are you? He said, fine. He said, well... As you know, we're on our way to Canton, and I have been told that if I wanted to get something done in Canton, I needed to call you. 
I said, well, yes, sir. How can I help you? I'm just probably on the floor by now. I said, well, how can I help you? In shock and amazement. Uh, he said, can you provide food and housing for 3,000 people? And without giving it a thought, to be honest with you, Ramsey, without giving it a thought, Marshall, I'm sorry. Oh, Ramsey's um, fine. Okay. I've without been giving worse. it a I know. And so have I. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, without giving it a thought, I said, I said, yes, I can. And um, so uh, when we hung up the phone, then I really got nervous just for about a minute. Um, but but I knew that I could do that because our community was so cohesive and together. I could call, you know, Miss Moselle to fix a pot of greens and Miss Anna Mae to fix a pot of peas and somebody else to cook cornbread and neck bones and fried fish and bologna sandwiches and just just, you know, prepare the food. I went to every restaurant in Canton. At that time, it was called a place, it was called The Hollow, where a lot of black ownerships uh, uh, was was there, restaurants were there. And so I visited every restaurant, and I said, you got to cook lots of food. And, and so by the time that the marches came, uh, Canton was almost spinning like an onion factory because everybody was cooking everything. But as an aside, when I met uh, Pre- President Barack Obama, I had an opportunity to tease him about the slogan, yes, we can. I said, now, see, you thought that the late in South Carolina coined the phrase during your campaign, yes, yes, I can. He said, yes, yes. I said, let me tell you this story. I told him the story about when I answered Dr. King, yes, I can. And he and I embraced, laughed about it. He said, well, I give you that one. Uh, but, But the long and short of that was that by the time that those tired, hungry marchers reached Canton, I and many others... Right. had prepared housing and food for them. Uh, Father Luke Mitchell, who was the priest at the Holy Child Jesus Gym, opened up the gym, and we brought in sleeping bags, blankets, pillows to help uh, sleep those people. So, and then sitting at his feet and having him to tell us about his death right. and what we must do once he's gone. And that's why I'm still on this beating path, because that day I made a promise that when, whenever, whenever I was given the opportunity to tell people about our history, that I would do that. And that's why just last night I was with the group, and, 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 and when people call, I'm going to answer that call I, because I made a promise that I would. And you kept the plates. Kept, you kept the plates he ate off of. I too. still have the plates that he ate, that he ate, ate off of in, in my mom's home because during yeah. I was driving him around Canton, and uh, he said, I want some soul food. I called mom. <laughs> my mom cooked a meal for him and his entourage, and I still have those plates to donate to the museum when it's time. That's awesome. Flonji, it's so good to see you again. And, of course, Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio. Coming up next is Southern Remedy. Thank you, Michelle, for once again producing a fantastic show. We'll be back next week. Y'all have a great week.